Lights. You are listening to Marvel's Pull List for new comics on sale March 3rd, 2021. I'm Ryan Panagos, a.k.a. Agent M. And I'm Tucker Marcus. Yes. Hello, world. We're going to tell you all about the brand new Marvel comics on sale this week. We got a lot of great stuff. Uh, We're going to give you our picks, our personal favorites up top. Then we're going to throw out some pulleys, a.k.a. our uh, awards that we give to books just because we like giving awards to books and uh, we get a little funny and pithy with it. Uh, Tucker, tell me something good. So I watched, uh, we talked about the BG's documentary already. Mm -hmm. Still going crazy for it. Yes. I did rewatch of Unforgiven. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, and going into it this time, I was like, I can't wait for that line. I just remember you shouting it out on an episode that we did. Uh, Deserves got nothing to do with it. Gives me chills. (laughs) That's a good movie. Good movie suggestion. This week, I watched two finales. One is one that people will not have been able to see yet. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. And it's great. And I also watched the finale of the Jurassic World or Jurassic Park show that's on Netflix, which is surprisingly great. It's like a kid's show, but it's it's got good stakes and it's a lot of fun. And I like dinosaurs. Yeah, it's exciting times. Big things are happening. A lot of stuff we all can't talk about, but we have a great show this week. Our guest is going to be Andy Greenwald, who's a writer and producer. and, And the book that we're talking about in our reading club is Vision. So um, I think a lot of people have been reading that recently. And so uh, I think that hits right at the perfect time as we dig into that. And spoiler, it's a real sad book. Yeah, it's intense. With that in mind, let's dive into the new books this week. I'm going to go first with America Chavez, Made in the USA, number one. It is written by Kalinda Vasquez, art by Carlos Gomez, colors by Jesus Arbutov, and letters by VCs Travis Lanham. Wow. There's a lot of secrets going on here, a lot of sort of like understanding of who America is, what her situation is, what I think Marvel wants to see from this character. And I think Kalinda's the right person to sort of tell the story and unique perspective, some really cool history and family things that we're exploring in this first issue. And Carlos Gomez crushing the game. He did The Amazing Mary Jane with Leah Williams that was out last year that we really loved. Carlos has just got that sense of big 90s comic book energy, but with very modern storytelling aspects as well. It's like there's a little bit of cheesecake. There's a little bit of manga. There's a little bit of big superhero stuff, but all undercut with a really great sense of emotion and good facial acting. If you are a fan of America, Chavez, then uh, I think this is one you're definitely going to want to keep your eyes on. And if you are someone who's like, oh, I heard America Chavez is going to be in the MCU. This is also a great book to sort of like get you in on the ground floor of who this character is. Now we're going over to my pick this week, which is a book that I've been very, very excited about. It's Demon Days X-Men, number one. The story and art in this is by Marvel Stormbreaker, Peach Momoko. The English adaptation is by Zach Davison, and the lettering is by VCs Ariana Mar. I could do an entire episode just talking about Peach's art because it's that special. It's funny. It's incredible to look at. Her creature work is incredible. There's just such imagination to all of it. And I think a distinctive eye for drama at the same time. As we get into the story, it's X-Men meets Yojimbo in a way. That kind of lone samurai type story, but also with certain great 
tropes that are kind of plucked from these genres that all mix into this perfect story. There is a sidekick sort of wolf named Logan that I love. Incredible, almost Miyazaki-esque design on the wolf. It's just beautiful. Then we have our kind of lead hero character wandering almost randomly into this major story and this monster that this town is dealing with. Where the story goes from there and how it evolves and how it takes unexpected turns structure-wise was so delightful. A great reading experience on all levels. Shout out to the entire creative team because this is an incredible achievement, I think, on all sides. Shout out to Lindsay Kohik, who edits, and it's just great to see all of that come together. It's a favorite issue of mine in recent times. Just beautiful stuff. Hell yeah. Another great issue, my second pick of the week, is King in Black, Wiccan and Hulkling number one, written by Tini Howard, pencils by Luciano Vecchio, colors by Espen Grutenjern, and letters by VCs Ariana Mar. I love this. So Tini, we've talked about a ton. Tini's had this great rise over the last couple of years, you know, now being part of the X-Men world and doing so many books. When I read that Tini was doing this book, I was almost like surprised, like they're letting her do non-X-Men things. It's great. You know, like, (laughs) and, and she loves Wiccan and Hulkling. And you can tell like her adoration for these characters, willingness to put them in very dangerous situations, uh, as part of that love. And then you get Luciano and I was reading this and I was like, man, this is beautiful. There's some vibes in this, which I think my eye sees it as vibing off of Trad Moore's null work and space work in uh, Silver Surfer Black, sort of like looking at that and how to portray some of those elements, that like lanky, weird fluidity that gets real spooky, really like gnarly. You get that and then you contrast that with just the wonderful, funny, cute romance story between Wiccan and Hulkling who are on their honeymoon. And it's just, that's a simple thing. They're getting to go on their honeymoon and it just so happens to be in the middle of Knowles reawakening and terrorizing the universe. It's very funny. It's very cute. It is harrowing at times. It's kind of gnarly and cool and spooky at other times. It is a kind of perfect tie-in book where you can read it as a Wiccan and Hulkling fan and you just want them and their romance and their quirks and their silliness and you get all that. You can read it as a King in Black completist and just want to see how Null's reach is stretching across the universe and you get all that. If you get into all of that and you you get a little bit of each, it's so damn good. Again, Luciano's art here is the best I've ever seen on his work. It's really, really good. I know Luciano is working with Danny Lore friend of the show on the new champions book, which this issue in particular got me super, super hyped for the art side of that champions book. I'm jazzed to see what Danny does as a writer, but just to see now what Luciano is bringing to the table, man, that's going to be one to watch out for. That's champions. This is King of Black, Wiccan and Hulkling. Oh yeah. I'm right there with you. Such exciting stuff happening. It was a really good week. And now we're jumping from our picks over to our pulleys giving out some of our favorite moments to every single book this week. And we're kicking it off with Avengers number 43. This is by Jason Aaron. And Pulley shout out to uh, Javier Garon. Maybe it's time we get back in the Garon zone here on Pulley. The Garon zone, yeah. What an artist. What a storyteller paired with Jason Aaron. It's no mistake that Javier Garon is 
multiplying his trade in one of the biggest books there is, certainly in terms of scale, certainly in terms of scale of story and action happening because, wow, we have a lot going on here. The Phoenix Force has pulled the Avengers into the White Hot Room and they have to fight it out. There is a new Phoenix being selected and we're jumping straight into it with Black Panther and Wolverine right at the top. It's, you know, some of the the biggest comics you'll read in terms of fighting in terms of the scale of the story that's happening in terms of how wonderfully well paced it is this is all leading towards the next issue which is going to be the debut of the new phoenix which is a super exciting thing this has been a great story arc i've been a really really big fan i'm the new phoenix i'm happy to announce that here on the show so congrats thank you thank you thank you (laughs) i just you know what i figured this is this is our podcast i want to announce it here and uh you know spoilers be damned all right, let's go over to Avengers Mech Strike number two, which gets my pulley for holy crap moment of the week where a mysterious big bad shows themselves in this issue and then straight up kills one of the Avengers in a moment that I, I'd have never seen it done that way. And I was like, oh, that's scary. It's really good. Uh, look, Avengers Mech Strike is kind of like Pacific Rim in the Marvel Universe. And it rules up, down, left, right, and sideways. I friggin' love everything that Jed and Carlos are doing in this book. So pick this up. Yeah. Next up, we have Hellions number 10. And this gets my pulley for somehow continuing to put Mr. Sinister in like the most fascinating relationship dynamics in the most fascinating situations that we can possibly find him in. I feel like This book, not only is it a great team book, uh, and we get some great action in here, some super creepy great action in this issue, but it's also, I feel like, just harnessing Sinister to be at his best. We've certainly seen him screw over probably hundreds of people in these first 10 issues alone, but things get a little bit tricky for Sinister in this one in particular, which was very exciting and interesting to see, and I can't wait for more. Yeah. All right. We're going to get into the King in Black section of our books this week. Uh, I'm going to do real quick, let y'all know that there's a King in Black handbook out this week, which I'm a big fan of handbooks. This is our official stamp of saying this is this person's power set and origin and power levels and all that good stuff. And it's all tied to uh, characters who have been involved in the Venom stories and King in Black. So if you dig that stuff like I do, definitely check it out. And then we have King of Black Captain America number one out this week. And oh, who's that? Who's written this book? Oh, it's our friend Danny Lore. They keep popping up in here. Uh, but this one is it's actually a Captain America, Winter Soldier, and Falcon book as Captain America is sort of dealing with having been nullified during the events of King and Black, whereas Bucky and Sam are his best friends, the people who know him pretty much better than anyone else and who are trying to keep him from losing himself. Uh, It's a really sweet story in a lot of ways. Uh, I will give a pulley to this for having one of my favorite silhouette panels of the week uh, in which you have Sam and Bucky handing the shield to Cap. And the, the only stuff that's not fully in silhouette are, is like the star and one of the stripes of the shield and the star in Captain America's chest. I think it's just it's really well positioned and put together. It's a beautiful little moment. Next up, we have King of Black, Gwenum versus Carnage, number three. What a gorgeous issue. Look, it's, you know, Flaviano Rico Renzi, an incredible combo. Rico Renzi, the iconic colorist when it comes to Gwen. But 
This gets my pulley for jam session of the week. There is a wild drumming guitar Gwen Mary Jane sequence in here that is just so cool. I love the art in this because it's this perfect mix between incredibly precise and incredibly messy where it just feels like such controlled chaos in the perfect way that I think is not just emblematic of Gwen I'm the character, but of what's going on with this story arc in general. And I think, you know, zooming back a bit, this is so exciting for this book because I just on a core level feel like Ghost Spider is made for King of Black. You know, it's just the perfect character and event crossover. I think there's just just tonally so much to play with, visually a ton to play with. And it's all being borne out here so, so wonderfully well by Sean and McGuire and crew. It's great stuff. Yeah. Uh, Last of our King of Black books this week is King of Black Thunderbolts number three. Man, this book is great. Matt Rosenberg and Juan Ferreira just dynamite together. Juan is built for these dark books. When he did the uh, Punisher Kill Crew book, when he's done this uh, Thunderbolts book, this issue opens with the Thunderbolts team, uh, which includes Star and Taskmaster trying to retrieve the two halves of the Sentry's body that were torn apart by Null, put them together so that they can take them to Null's stronghold and then blow them up in hopes of maybe killing Null. And it's the adventure. It's it's like, it's a big fetch quest. They have to get the halves of the body and bring it back into the middle of Manhattan. And it's hilarious and it's dark and it's messed up and it's wonderfully paced. It's really funny. It's got a great Batrock moment. Man, I want Matt and Juan to do every single book together forever until the end of time. It's really great. Yeah, what an incredible combo. And another great combo is coming to your local comic shop with Power Pack number four. And that combination is Ryan North and Nico Leon, two creators that I think are just so perfectly cast for a Power Pack book. This one was kind of particularly exciting to read because I felt like as a massive fan of Ryan North the Ryan Northiness of it kind of continues to shine through in new ways. And I think, you know, if you're a fan of Unbeatable Squirrel Girl, if you've read that series, if you've heard us go crazy about that series, if you heard our recent episode with Rochelle Rosenberg, we've talked about all this kind of stuff, you know what it means. It's almost impossible to find, but you know it immediately as you see it. But this is a really perfect combination of so many different things. Superhero story, family story. I think it's leans so wonderfully into Ryan North's storytelling ability. His ability to jump from humor into emotion at the drop of a hat is just incredible. And it's perfect for these characters. So I think my pulley for this one goes to those like wonderful interstitial moments, those wonderful asides that I think can only be brought to you by Ryan North in such a fashion. It's something that I think if he wrote a null standalone book, which would, you would assume, be the darkest, most intense thing you could imagine, he would still find a way to make you feel tingly and delighted, which is just what I love about him so much. And you definitely get that here. Yeah, that book had one of my true laugh out loud moments of the week. It's so good. It's so good. Also so good is Runaways number 34. Runaways continues to remain one of my favorite books that we publish, and it's a treasure every time an issue comes out. This one gets my pulley for reversal of the week, in which Princess Power and Wolverine have a little tete-a-tete, and it's a silent three sort of figure sequence in one wide panel that is 
just tremendous. It's really great. I will not spoil it anymore, but Wolverine's in this one and you've got Pixie in here and they have come to take Molly, aka Power Princess, to Krakoa because they believe that they got a request that she wants to leave. Basically, you get the classic superhero. One team meets another team. They get up in each other's faces, fight a little bit, and then they realize that they have to come together to deal with a bigger problem. And it's just fun. You got like weird ice cream monsters and you've got a wonderful meat cute with blushing faces. By the end of the book, it's tremendous. It's some of the most natural and wonderful dialogue and interactions and pacing that you will find in any comic on the shelves. All right, we're wrapping it up this week with a Star Wars book. This is Star Wars, The High Republic, number three. This gets my pulley four sort of genre crossover that I'm just constantly in love with. It's something that if it was up to me, we'd get a ton more of, which is Star Wars and horror. It's not something that you automatically associate with these two things, but when you get it, I feel like it's so impactful. There's some really creepy moments in this issue, which I was a really, really big fan of. It's kind of claustrophobic at times. You really, I feel like, have bought into these characters' storylines super quickly, So when you see them at risk, you really feel it. It's a bunch of my favorite standalone elements, and then you put them into the Star Wars mixer, and it just becomes something really, really special that I'm a big fan of. All right, that's what we got for our new issues coming to your local comic shop this week. Now jumping over to collections, a bunch of great stuff in here. We have Dr. Doom, Volume 2, Bedford Falls, which is uh, Christopher Cantwell, a writer I'm a massive fan of. And then, of course, we've got a big one, Ten of Swords, a series that Ryan and I, about an hour ago, just got done shouting to someone about, about how much we love it, about how great it is. You know, you could pack an entire issue's worth of plucked out panels and moments of Pepe work from Ten of Swords and just put them sequentially in there and you would have a great time. But yeah, check that out. Coming in print collections is Ten of Swords this week. Yeah. And if you are not buying collections, but you want to read on Marvel Unlimited, the final issues of Ten of Swords are now in MU. So you can jump on all 23 parts of that in Marvel Unlimited. There's also issues of Doctor Doom, Falcon Winter Soldier, Maestro, and a book that we talked about a little bit earlier, Power Pack. First issue of that series is now in Marvel Unlimited. Definitely check them all out. That's the books. Tucker, who are we talking to this week? This week, we're talking to Andy Greenwald. Andy is a writer formerly of Grantland Online. He was also a writer on the Legion television show, Also, the creator and showrunner of Briar Patch, just a bunch of great stuff and a huge, huge comic fan with a bunch of great insights, some classic knowledge. This week, we're talking about a big one, Vision from 2015. Let's go talk to Andy about that right now. Andy Greenwald, thank you so much for joining us here on Marvel's Pull List. You're coming to us from... Los Angeles, is that right? Yes, I am here in in sunny, and I do say that as a brag, Los Angeles. (laughs) (laughs) I guess to kick us off, we're talking about two series here. We're talking about West Coast Avengers. We're talking about Vision from 2015. But as far as your relationship to Marvel Comics goes, where did that all start? Well, if you want to go all the way back, I definitely had a flexi-disc record that Stan Lee narrated and I think had the Spider-Man theme song on it when I was five or six. But that 
surprisingly enough, did not cause fandom to stick. <laughs> I was definitely like a consumer of comics. Like I loved Archie comics and comic strips, but it actually wasn't until middle school when a good friend of mine, I should shout him out, Mazi Jamal, gave me a copy of an X-Factor issue that was new. And it was the issue where Archangel is revealed as one of Apocalypse's horsemen. And it was a hell of a gateway drug. And what was most exciting to me about it wasn't the story, which was totally in the dark about it, couldn't understand it, but that the idea and the feeling that the potential story for me to learn about moved in two directions. What I mean is not just that this was going to be resolved and the villain would become a hero again, but that there were literally years of backstory that went into this and that these guys used to be the X-Men and then they weren't and that this guy was dead and he used to have actual wings and what did that mean? And it totally lit my brain on fire and just made me so excited to consume more and more story in all directions because, you know, you guys might be able to relate and maybe listeners can too. There's something that is really addictive about like four-dimensional story to know that it's been just continued on for years and there's all these little like side streets and back alleys of characters and interactions just to know about and to discover. And I went pretty hard after that. I went as hard as my allowance would allow. (laughs) One of the things that I've been thinking about recently, and when you brought this up, is the subliminal way that creators get in our minds. You mentioned this issue of X Factor, and so that's Luis and Walt Simonson. Two incredible creators who are just doing their thing, making great comics, and you read it and you, you started thinking about different things. I just have this feeling that there are certain creators that get into our brains and help drive us into whatever we do and enjoying these comics and these stories more and more that you you probably don't even recognize for years. And that's such a cool entry point with that storyline and and those creators. Man, I can just close my eyes and picture Walt's archangel soaring through the sky. It's it's something. Oh, and there was all this pathos to it too, right? Because these were old friends, you know. And again, that piece of it really mattered to me. It wasn't flashy. It wasn't something new. There was this idea that these people were grownups who had gone through all these things and there was more to it to discover. And and I was also, again, experiencing it as a kid and a fan. Maybe in retrospect, you could lodge some criticism about what it did to the industry. But like, I think it was the beginning of an era of crossovers and of big events that to a kid just felt mind-blowing. Not just to go a little bit backwards, because I think Death of the Mutants was just before it. And I remember hearing about that. And then, But then moving forward to like Inferno, then we get into like Jim Lee showing up. And I, I mean, I'm a 90s kid for all these comics. This is this is where I was. Yeah, Andy, you have such a like a really cool and really enviable and incredible resume and like career history. And it does feel like Marvel Comics were a really early piece of media that was both here's a super compelling story and also we're going to connect with you and we're going to give you behind the scenes details about whatever, you know, people in the bullpen or whatever artist did this issue or anything like that. I'm curious, just generally with that in mind, how you see Marvel Comics in your trajectory as a creative person. Oh, there's no question it's there. I mean, it lit a 360 degree fandom in me that has never really been extinguished. To be growing up in the suburbs in the 80s and to be interested in just interested, to be an interested person. There's a lot of space to fill. You want to lose yourself in something. You want to bury yourself in something. You want there to be something cultural that you can connect with on a hundred different levels all at once. And so that was Marvel for me. And it was the type of fandom, which is both intellectual, but also very much driven by the heart that would later 
find an echo in like Twin Peaks on TV or many years later in Lost, where it's not just the text, it's your own engagement with the text. It's the act of fandom and engagement that allows you to seek out. And by the time we get to Lost, then you have like Wikipedia and you have all these other different rabbit holes to fall down. But it's a kind of all-consuming engagement that I love. And to pick up the thread you put down, like that is absolutely why I have always loved TV, uh, why I wanted to write about TV and then work in TV, because I think it's a uniquely intimate medium. And the next step when it came to making my own show, Briar Patch, last year, that I do think can be traced back to comic books, is I love the idea of a community within a story, that every character in the Marvel comics I grew up with, every character, every supporting character had a little backstory, actually often a lot of backstory and connections, you know, and there's always something at play just out of frame. And when you were reading a comic, you kind of wished you could go down that hallway at the Avengers Mansion and follow those characters. What are they talking about? Maybe we'll find out another time. Or, you know, those really helpful little asterisks like, uh, don't you remember this happened in Shellhead's adventure with Cap and whatever. <laughs> so when it came time to make my own show, I mean, I wanted a really deep bench of characters because I love them all. And I love their backstories and their connections and their interactions. And all of that specificity and decision making in terms of this character isn't just the person to deliver information in one scene. This guy also has a history and lives in a bowling alley or whatever. All of that came from, I really do think, directly from reading Marvel comics at such a young age, because just the generosity of imagination can be overwhelming, but it can also be really rewarding. Yeah, well said. I'm thinking about sort of your path and what we're discussing here and the different things you've done and similarities in my career and my path and seeing that you wrote that book, Nothing Feels Good. And I was like, that's a promise ring song. Wait a minute. So are you an old punk kid as well? Oh, no, I'm a poser. I mean, I'm an old indie kid. And when I was working at Spin 20 years ago, I got assigned a lot of stories about what was the emerging emo scene then. And my relationship with the music was not robust. It was mostly my best friend and still to this day podcast co-host Chris Ryan, who was actually living with guys who were in an emo band and like Get Up Kids were staying at his apartment in Boston and he played me the Promise Ring stuff and I wasn't sure about it. My aha moment was I got assigned to cover Dashboard Confessional in 2001, right after 9-11 and he was playing a show at CBGB's and the crowd at CBGB's for a Dashboard Confessional show was almost entirely kids with pleated khakis and Gamecocks hats who had had their parents <laughs> drive them in from Long Island. And I was like, these are the kids who would make fun of me in high school. And now they're at CBGB singing their hearts out. There's something interesting here. And so I retroactively went down that path and I familiarized myself with the music I'd missed more in the 90s and wrote about what was happening in the early 2000s. Got it. Yeah. It sort of reminds me of the conversations we're having about being a comic book fan. And it always becomes part of you. It always stays a part oh, of yeah. you. Like me being a hardcore kid in New York City and Long Island and Queens and stuff, like that's always going to be who I am and, and part of my ethos. But like it's sort of goes away as I'm a dad, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. And so when I find someone, it's like you get that connection to someone, which I, I just love. And that was actually, to bring it full circle, I mean, my comic book fandom or my indie rock fandom or whatever I was into is actually what fueled me to write the book that I wrote. Because ultimately what was interesting to me about it was that it was about teen culture, how it's at once always the same, but also was changing very much because of the internet. And how when you're at a certain age in your life, you need to define yourself by aligning yourself with something larger. And what, what I was observing anecdotally through that crowd that I was describing, but also just in general, was the internet, even at that earlier stage, was opening the doors of subculture to everyone. And you didn't have to go to the creepy 
punk show at the church or whatever. And what did that mean? But really my way into it was hopefully empathy and affection for being young and just wanting to connect. Now, Andy, we've talked about the East Coast. We've talked about the West Coast. We've talked about khakis. Where would you like to start with our books today? In some ways, the more emo conversation that we've been having does tie into this absurd West Coast Avengers annual number two that I asked you guys to read. (laughs) It's sort of hard to describe why I chose it other than the fact that I think about this issue a lot because what really opened me up about comic books and I try to remember in storytelling now was just the audacity of it and the gigantic just gonzo thinking that fuels most of the books that I respond to and that I think has finally come back into vogue with some of the writers that are prominent in the industry now and actually are starting to creep into the film stuff as well. And so this West Coast Avengers annual, it really scratched two itches. One was, I was said at the very beginning about learning that there's this history and stuff. So when I started reading comic books, it was right around then that that annual came out and like, wait, there's a West Coast Avengers? What does that even mean? They live in places? Like they choose the city they live in and they have tortured history with each other? And West Coast Avengers was so bizarre because they were so angry about the other team. It was kind of like the way Philadelphia and New York exist in that Philadelphia is, and I can say this as a native, like is just constantly resentful and furious about New York and New York never thinks about Philadelphia at all. (laughs) And like, that's what the West Coast Avengers was like. And it's just like Hawkeye and Wonder Man and Tiger and this weird group of people. So I was fascinated by that. But then in an annual, within the first six pages of this annual, the West Coast Avengers play softball against the East Coast Avengers. And like Thor hits a home run with his hammer. And then they're immediately like teleported into space where they're told that something is up with East Coast Avengers and the Grandmaster and the Collector. And they say, okay, great. Give us the strongest poison in the universe and we will commit mass suicide to rescue our friends. Then it's like page seven. (laughs) And it reminds you to take big choices with your storytelling. But the thing that I remember most was the competitiveness between the friends, that this was an issue in which Captain America fought Mockingbird and Thor fought Wonder Man. And again, it's that internal drama and strife and it's shared history that was just so cool. And they do it all in the shadow of death, who is a skeleton lady. The audacity of the ideas was really defining for me. I think you guys probably would have a better segue, but I think what is so compelling to me about the vision series we're going to talk about is that I, while it is serious and heavy and very contemporary, I do think that Tom King has that spark of playfulness that could only have come from reading books like that. And ultimately, a lot of the West Coast Avengers stuff is in the background of this because that was where Vision turned white and wiped his memory and blah, blah, blah. So that, I chose that book for that reason. Uh, I want to give the credits here. It's uh, Steve Englehart and Tom DeFalco on the the story, Al Milgram on art, Greg Wright on colors, Tom Orzakowski on letters with Mark Grunwald and Jim Shooter editing. It's it's a, you know, a Shooter era book. Oh my God, that's the 80s dream team. If anybody out there hasn't yet, definitely look up Tom Brevoort on Twitter, who has been digging through his old files. Tom has been at Marvel for a little over 30 years now. And so he has memos from Shooter that he's been posting up, letters from Stan Lee and all this stuff. But nowadays, you know, the more I talk to folks who are around during Shooter's era, the more I'm fascinated by every single piece of work that came out during that time period. I, I The more we talk about it, the more I love that you chose these two things to pair together, because I think picking two books that are seemingly so disparate and then digging into it and finding that there is actually a ton of foundational work 
being done in interesting ways, whether you're looking at it from like the Marvel Universe perspective or you're looking at it from the creator's perspective between something like West Coast Avengers Annual and The Vision, you talked about loving the bold choices that are made in both of these stories. One of them maybe seems a little bit more grounded, but is in its own right just as absurd. But loving these choices, nevertheless, taste dictates, though, like what the difference is between something that is wild and great and wild and inane and terrible. And I'm just curious about like your thoughts on that, how you have grown in your own taste as a creator. And the thing that I am most interested in, which is someone having great taste, but not quite the ability to live up to it yet. And getting there eventually. Uh, I just wanted to hear your thoughts on on that subject. Sure. Well, well, I think in general, comics can be great testing ground. You can watch creators flourish in real time. But to your other point, I feel lucky to be generationally where I am with comics because when I was a kid, comics were for kids. And then comics became for those kids as they got older and older and older and older. And I do think that the majority of comics that I respond to now are for grownups. It does seem to me that the publishers have figured this out more and now obviously have targeted lines and characters that are more all ages and storytelling that can appeal to different segments of the population. But reading the West Coast Avengers annual now, I mean, it was important for me at the time. And I I think I obviously had different standards then for what was good and, and realizing that at the time, I really, really, really loved something that I think almost drives me crazy now, which was the sort of obsessive anal cataloging and timeline curation of what this means and where it happens. I mean, this annual, and annuals are already complicated and like slightly, you know, adjacent to the whatever's going on in the book, but like every page has a remember this, Ed, you know, and then like you can feel them wedging the Silver Surfer's involvement into like tying themselves into knots to get him into this book being like yes he was finally freed from his earthly prison by the way that was a big deal but it was such a dumb idea to have him trapped on earth but whatever but i love that stuff because again it suggested bigger minds at work and bigger plans afoot when i reread the vision series i actually found myself becoming almost the opposite of that being like i loved the female thor storyline but it almost dates this book, which I think is a timeless, maybe the definitive examination of this character to have him be interacting with an Avengers that is specifically the 2015 Avengers with Sam Wilson as Captain America and Steve Rogers old and two Spider-Men. I wanted it to be free of continuity and just be the purity of story. I I feel like I'm going to contradict myself just to say that like this vision series is just so absolutely for grownups. But for me, it feels like the summation of fandom for me. You know, this is not just what I want to read right now. It feels absolutely where in the best case scenario, all of the West Coast Avengers annuals along the way was headed. I was at Marvel when this came out and I remember the sensation it became so quickly because it is such a visionary work. It is so beautiful, so well told, so poetic. But in rereading it now, I had a harder time with it from 2015 to Now, 2021, I have a daughter and she's 16 months old now. And we literally just moved into our house last week. And like, you know, seeing them talking about moving to the house as the book opens and all these things. And then as go through the storyline and how utterly relentless it feels in the things that happen and the cause and effect of everything that goes on. I was just like, this is just a lot more than I want right now. It's an incredibly sad 
an incredibly disturbing story. And kudos to everyone for allowing it to be published. Yes. What I loved as a kid was the never-ending sprawl of uh, almost consequence-free universe. Now, as I'm older and I want more emotion and, you know, emotional honesty in my storytelling, I need stakes, you know, I need more consequences and I need something that is almost separate, carved out of the endless scrum of reinvention. I also think that what really makes this vision comic notable is that there is a school of comic creation, and I have enjoyed it very much, where it's purely biggest, craziest idea, just bananas, galaxy brain thinking for the sake of doing it. And especially, I agree with you, Ryan, reading it now, this book is Tom King working stuff out. I don't know him at all. I've never met him. But I, you know, he even says in the letters page, you know, he has a young family and he lives in the suburbs. And choosing a iconic non-human character to write a book about how it's impossible to be human is just devastating. And it, you know, and I, and I, I really, it makes me happy that even in the midst of, you know, multi-tiered quadrant branding, there is still room for someone to pick up these action figures and say, no, no, I'm going to play with them this way. And it can support that. Yeah. To get down the credits as we get into Vision more, it's written obviously by Tom King, art by Gabriel Hernandez-Walta, colors by Jordi Belair, letters in production by VCs Clayton Cowles. Shout out to Michael Walsh as well. I was going to shout him out. He's one of my favorite artists. Right? He's so good. Uh, he, oh, he gets one issue to just knock it out of the park in here to give Gabriel a breather, man, just crushes it. It is so rare for the substitute issue to fit. Obviously, artists need a break, but usually when you see there's that one, especially if it's a contained story, it's just a bummer, you know, but not in this case, because whoever was making the decisions for this comic, like found an artist who is not only totally simpatico with what they want to do, but that's a very specific, almost standalone bottle issue. And it's beautiful. There's a line in this issue, number one, that stuck out to me when Vision goes to the White House and the president says to him, you know, it's funny meeting you. I've never felt so safe and yet so scared. Isn't that funny? And that feels kind of emblematic of the issue. It feels like a mission statement a little bit from the creative team. And hearing you, Andy, talk about Tom working things out here, taking these toys out of the toy box and choosing to use them in this specific way. When starting from a place where, okay, we know where the vision is before this, and we know vaguely how we would like to leave him when the entire story is done, just like any comic book. When you're doing something like that as a creator, does that fundamentally change every decision you make? Or ultimately, is the storytelling process the same? And you are relying on the humanity of a story. You're, you're going to dig into these characters in the same way regardless. Or, or is it a fundamentally different prospect? Well, I think there's two things that I, and I don't think I'm on his level, but two things that I relate to about what I, I think Tom King did here. And one thing that I definitely didn't. And one thing that is, this comes from a place of love. He loves all these characters, the ones he's created and the ones he's rehabbing, like Victor Mancha. Like there's such humanity, even in these characters who aren't human. Two, I think he has, and I really love this and admire it. I think he has a deep skepticism about superheroes as a project. If you have to put yourself in this fictional universe where they exist, you've got to start asking these questions, which is why are we living with all these nuclear bombs all the time? And to, to bring in the WandaVision series for a second, there was a moment that I bumped on. That's when Monica Rambeau is thrown out of Westview and everyone in the paramilitary sword team is like, we have to take action here. And she's like, no, Wanda's heart is good. And it's like, what? are we sure about that? 
Like, look what's going on here. She's a hero. She has to say that. I mean, this is a superhero show. But I think that that question of like, why are we letting this complete like global power robot who can create more of himself be our teammate? Like, why are we sure about that? Um, that that's imbued in every page of this. The thing that I just admire purely from a structural perspective is clearly Tom King is an outliner. Clearly, he is the kind of person who has a brain that allows him to think in terms of the totality of the story. I really still struggle with that. And that ability to plan is certainly new for comics, relatively speaking, because before, right, it was just like, they're just going to go on forever. Nothing's ever really over. So you didn't really need to plan that that far ahead or certainly bring things to a beautiful, poetic, symmetrical close. So what's so haunting about Vision is the narrative voice that's bopping in every so often to be like, these people that you've met in episode one, when they die in agony in a fire, this is what they'll be thinking about. But what's so great about what he does is that's a little curly cue. I mean, he's just showing off and stunting a little bit with that. What we're not expecting is that the floating water vase is Chekhov's floating water vase. We think that that is just a curly cue of like, this guy loves comics and he's into weirdness. But no, that's actually crucial and sad and beautiful like the rest of the book. So I love that his planning is both evident in that you can trust him driving this, but also surprising in that you don't actually know where you're going or how you're going to get there. That feeling of surprise done so well in that first issue too. It's when Grim Reaper first shows up, you've got that beautiful, horrible splash page of Viv just getting run through by Reaper's scythe. I remember going through it and being like, man, that's a cliffhanger. And then there's still like five more pages left and you get to what they really land on and the, the main domino that really starts to set the story going of what Virginia does in killing Grim Reaper and how that sort of sets off everything and the lies and these free will characters. And it's, it's a phenomenal first issue. It's so economical. Yeah. I think it goes to your point though, is like he's outlining, he knows the beats he needs to hit and he's really, he's really thinking about it and how to, to make everything work really, really well. And I think it's worth noting that I think a lot of the comics that I have liked historically I admire sometimes for their messiness and the messiness of their ideas. And this is really setting the bar high in the opposite direction. Did you have a different experience rereading this than you did when you first picked it up? I think it's like Ryan. I did not remember how brutally sad it was. I think that's partly the way my brain likes to scrub unpleasant things you know, <laughs> and move on from them. I remembered being totally haunted by the art and by what it had to say and what it suggested about life. Uh, artificial or not. But maybe it is also a factor of just this year and how fragile everything feels that to read it now, it was much more unsettling. Yeah. Important things that I want to make sure we talk about are all the art pieces of this. We've talked about Michael Walsh and his Scarlet Witch issue, but the Gabriel Hernandez Volta stuff, the layers, the texture of his storytelling, the emotional acting that Gabriel does with characters who are quote-unquote artificial life, these androids, these synthesoids, the eyes in particular, keeping them pupilless actually adds so much more depth into their expressions and allows for so much emotion throughout all of this. I think it's, it's really incredible. 
Yeah, I, I don't think I have a full vocabulary for how to describe comic book art, but I do know that this is so striking and so unique and so beautiful and so muted. I mean, the color palette obviously plays into that too, what Jordi Belair did, but there's a tendency, and this obviously got more, went out of control in the steroidal 90s, but to like present figures, whether they're actually superheroes or not, as larger than life, you know, iconic titans in front of us and like... This is the opposite of that. This is just completely understated. And in fact, everyone looks kind of puny and sad like people do in life. And it's not just in the moments of Viv being sad at high school. It's when we actually see the Avengers too. I mean, I love unexpected depictions of the heroism we're familiar with. And when the Avengers actually do show up, it just looks like a bunch of people in funny suits chasing each other, which on some level it is and, and suits the emotional palette of the storytelling as well. I love when artists like him get let in the side door and get to play in the Marvel universe. It's just, it's really enriching. Yeah. I'm glad you brought up Jordy as well, because the colors, I think part of the sense of dread and sadness is due to her color work throughout this. The hues that she uses here, slightly different from some of the the work that I've seen. I think it's really tailored to this. Obviously, you have a lot of green in here and, and orange and stuff. But the way she uses it and the feeling of the different seasons changing through the use of color, some of the flashback aspects that she uses different hues for. When you see someone who is a master at their craft at work, you know it. We didn't talk about colorists in the 80s. I mean, we should have. I mean, everyone was contributing. But if you were ticking down the boxes of the most important contributions to this book, the choice of the red and the green for Division's color palette is so unsettling and so defining, right? I mean, it, it is a reddish pink that I've never seen before. And it is a green that is nuclear. You know, the color of Sparky the dog is unsettling. It is the color of something that is probably radioactive. And it's telling you the danger that all of the shirts and ties and suburban scrim can't hide. Another, I want to also make sure we talk about the cover work here. I'm trying to figure out which one would be my favorite out of all these. There, I think 11 of them are by Mike Del Mundo and one by Marco D'Alfonso, maybe two by Marco. But still, these are some gorgeous covers. And I feel like now so closely tied to the comic book word vision. Was there one that affected either of you more than than the others? I don't have a specific cover. I guess I just want to say that, that I love this. And maybe it's a question for you guys who work at the company. Like from the, the moment this started publishing, it seemed like everyone was on board with what it was, what it could be, and the tone. Because there's a richness to the covers. There's a humor and a self-awareness to the covers that in a more anxious publishing circumstance might not have been allowed to let Tom King do this, to choose the brilliant artists that were chosen and then to put the covers on it. It is a total package, you know, and that doesn't always happen. No. Shout out to friend of the show, editor Will Moss. You know, Will has been instrumental. Have you read Immortal Hulk, Andy? I have the hardcover. I just got it. I have not read it yet. Oh, you're in for a ride. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That is... Uh, Easily one of our favorite books of the last couple of years. And that is Al Ewing is the the writer and the rest of the creative team, particularly Joe Bennett, the artist. But Al's thoughts of beginning, middle, and end, it's great. It's really something special. He's another one of those writers who I've now come to look for. His ultimates. Mm -hmm. I was like, yeah, this is what I want. This Hell is, yeah. you know, and there, and there are just certain writers who are just like, I'm going to pick up the scraps. It's like the great chefs who are like, you're not using these carrot tops. Guess what? That's the best part of the vegetable, and I'm going to make the most <laughs> incredible meal. He's like a forager, 
And I love that. Yeah. I remember there being some like, every you know, th- we want to launch every book as being the coolest, greatest, most amazing thing. And, and I think this one, because of the unique covers and the willingness for the entire team from, you know, editor in chief to editor, to salespeople, to everybody to say, this is the right way to do it. Let the book be what it is. I think we all understood that this is something cool, something special and something that could be like evergreen for Marvel as everybody wants to have something that you can just hand to someone and say, this is a beautiful work of art. Please enjoy it. It's a comic book. It's not just that those digestible collections, you know, that are definitive. It's not just that those seem to be more often than not the kinds of things that the Hollywood arm can be like, okay, I get this. I can share this with someone. We can use this or we can build on this. It's also, I just think that there's a fan base. I mean, I'm part of it. Ten of Swords, guys. I'm 43 years old. I love it, but I can't (laughs) do it. But what I can do is Matt Fraction's Hawkeye or Tom King's Vision. You know what I mean? Or Al Ewing's Hulk. Like, give me these big swings that I can wrap my arms around and just treasure. As we wrap up here, that this leads us perfectly to a question I was really curious about, Andy, is what you're reading nowadays. What's piquing your interest? So I have been um, using the comic book store much differently than I used to. I really don't buy monthlies very often. I wait for the collections because time has a very different meaning to me now than it did when I was 15. So I usually wait for the collections. I wait to read the buzz about like something like Immortal Hulk. And I actually like being able to, I mean, I'm, I'm at the age now where I'm patient enough to wait for like the second hardcover to be available. So now I can read two. Oh, and, and then like, I, I actually go more often for my daughters who love like the Raina Telgemeier books or actually most of my older daughter's reading is graphic novels and original graphic novels, which is so exciting. But it was Hickman that pulled me back into the shop because it just fired up that, I thought, dormant muscle, which is that, wait, all of this stuff mattered and he's taking all of this refuse and molding it into something that I never could have imagined and kind of breaking my brain in the process. That's where this should have gone. That's great. But it, but there's symmetry to it because I left the I left the weekly comic book game. I mean, I would duck back in and out for certain titles or certain artists. My friend Alan Heinberg created Young Avengers for Marvel, and I loved reading those. But I basically quit the monthly game after Morrison left X-Men because I was always an X-Men person first and foremost. And I was like, well, he did it. It's done. I know they'll keep publishing this, but I don't, this was the definitive X-Men story because he told all of them or his versions of all of them. And then he just walked away and that was all I needed. And so it's kind of, I don't know, it's, it's, it's kind of neat that 20 years later I was, I was wrong and someone's doing it again in a completely new direction. So that's where I'm at. You, you guys will have to tell me what I'm missing. Yeah, I, actually, I wanted to throw two recommendations your way is um, the current Black Widow series by Kelly Thompson. I thought about that a lot while rereading Vision, to be honest, because Tucker and I were just having a conversation about how I love when a, a comic can truly make me feel something and like push me back and like get me emotionally invested and devastated. And um, I, I think... Black Widow is just what, like five issue arc that just finished and six issues will start a new storyline by Kelly and the crew. But if you liked Vision, I think this Black Widow series would be really, really up your alley. And it is devastating and beautiful and funny and wonderful. It's really great. I read some of her Hawkeye, so I'm I'm a little familiar. So I'm ready for more. Yeah. She's one of my favorites. And then in a similar vein, and Tucker, I'm sure you'll know what I was going to suggest, is the current MODOK series, MODOK Head Games. 
which is by Pat Oswalt and Jordan Bloom. It's really great and it's really fun. They're the ones doing the the Modoc show for Hulu, and it's it's really good and it's got some um, surprising depth in a lot of ways, similar to how they mined the entirety of Vision's you know history for yeah. Vision. Um, I know for a fact Jordan has read every single appearance of Modoc <laughs> in order to do the show and to do the book. I'm very curious because you know you mentioned Michael Walsh before his when he was on Secret Avengers that was which I loved that was like the definitive Modoc as far as I'm concerned. So good, he's really good there. I should say that like I I wasn't doing weeklies but I did have the unlimited subscription so I would dip in and be like oh I should know more about Ms. Marvel and I loved that character and the introduction and I got really into Jason Aaron and Russell Dodderman's Thor which was just beautiful storytelling and just just rich and fun. You know, I, I, I don't want to make it seem like I only want the Debbie Downer maxi series. Um, <laughs> there is something about just that well, that well-told long-term comic book storytelling that is unique to the form and you can't get it anywhere else. Amen to that. Andy, I, I just want to say, I'm glad that two of the writers that you immediately spoke about were Jonathan Hickman and Al Ewing, because those are the two that come to mind for me when I think of people whose brains scare me, mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm terrified of you as a person. I never want to interview you. You you seem totally nice, but I just am so overwhelmed by the power of what's going on in there that I can't do it. All right. This is uh, another thing that just came to mind, though, is as a lifelong fan, as a writer, do you have some notebooks stashed away from decades past? Do you have some hidden file deep in your laptop of like, this is the mystique story I want to tell. This is the whatever, you know, which whichever character that you have. Is that something that kind of tickles your brain? Do you guys know he was an editor at Marvel a while ago, a guy named Andy Schmidt? Of course. Ask him if he still has access to his Marvel email because he has the pitch. <laughs> He's got the pitch. Let me know. I, they never got green lit, but let me know. Mm. I won't even say the character because somehow... No one's done it. All right. Interesting. Andy, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for um, suggesting some some fun comics to read and some sad comics to read and yeah. being here to talk about comics. We appreciate it. Thanks, guys. It's total, total pleasure. I don't get to do that enough. Big thank you once again to Andy for coming on the show, for talking with us about Vision, for getting sad and weird with us. <laughs> uh, also, reading that West Coast Avengers book with the weird softball baseball game in the stadium a lot going on there hope you all check it out uh definitely check out everything andy has going on that wraps us up this week this episode of marvel's pull list was produced by ryan pagos tucker marcus jorge strada with help from megan bagala jill leboff is our director of audio and brad barton is marvel's pull list audio development manager and like he always says the ten of swords were the friends we made Oh, Brad. I'm Ryan. So nice. And I'm Tucker. This is Marvel. Your universe. <laughs>